So our first Bible reading this morning is um, from John 20, which um, and verses 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails on his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hands and put it on my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Okay, we're having our second reading now, which is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. 
in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you ever have the sensation that the world you live in is slipping away from you, slithering and sliding about beneath you, such that you feel destabilized, disconnected, discombobulated even, to use an American slang word? Do you ever find yourself wondering what happened to the old certainties? Longing nostalgically for those different days when you knew on what basis you stood where you stand and what it meant. Well, for now at least, those days are gone. If we're honest, they've been disappearing for a while as the train of Western culture has pulled out from the station of modernity, leaving some of us stranded on the platform and not sure what's happening next looking with confusion, envy, or derision at those comfortably riding the train away from us. The fact is that long-established political convictions are being recast, and treasured religious orthodoxies are being questioned, both from within the church as well as from without. It can all seem very disorientating. And then there's politics. Events, dear boy, events, as Harold Macmillan may have put it. Just this week, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, we all knew where we stood with that, didn't we? Well, it's been suspended, and once again, the nation goes to the polls and the ground has shifted. But who we're voting for and on which issues is possibly less clear as we enter the forthcoming election than in any other of recent decades. The world has turned on its axis and we are no longer where we once were. And no amount of voting, hoping, or campaigning is going to turn it back. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in an uncertain world? What does it mean to seek the path of faithful discipleship when the paths have all moved and the signs have been taken down? How are we to relate our faith to a society that sometimes seems so far removed from the society we might want to live in that we can feel like aliens and exiles in our own land? These are questions addressed by the little book we call One Peter, which the lectionary is inviting us to engage with over the next few weeks as we journey from Easter to Pentecost in the Christian year. If you've not encountered 1 Peter in depth before, then I think you're in for a treat over the next few weeks, albeit a challenging one. Graham Stanton, one of the uh, great New Testament scholars of the last 30 years, now sadly deceased, described 1 Peter as one of the finest literary and theological writings in the New Testament. High praise indeed. Actually, I've got a story about Graham Stanton. He originally came from New Zealand, and he taught New Testament at King's College London. Did you know him at King's, John? Did he? No? Okay, we taught New Testament at King's, and uh, he taught also at Cambridge University, more latterly. And the college in Cambridge, where he was a fellow, was Fitzwilliam College. And my old friend Simon Perry, known to many of us here at Bloomsbury as the other Simon, because he had my job before I have it, uh, or perhaps with 1 Peter, 2 Peter, we ought to think of him as one's, one Simon, and I can be two Simon. Anyway, 
before he came to Bloomsbury, he was chaplain at Fitz. And he invited me once, many years ago, to come and preach at his chapel in Cambridge. And I've always been very grateful to him for not pointing out to me until afterwards that the smiling man sat there on the front row was the great Graham Stanton himself, whom I hadn't recognised. Anyway, back to 1 Peter and our series for the next few weeks. It's one of those books that is easy to overlook. Or, if we do turn to it, just to concentrate on a couple of the more famous passages. Which is a shame, because I think it has much to say to us about what it means to live lives of faithful discipleship in the midst of uncertain and hostile times. It was probably written towards the end of the first century from Rome to be circulated around a group of churches in Asia Minor. So I've brought along a little map for you, uh, which we can have a little look at. Um, So you may have noticed in the first verse it listed... And well done, Helen, for getting them absolutely right. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia as the areas that it is written to. And the ordering of these probably gives us a bit of a clue as to the route taken by the messenger around the major cities, leaving a copy of the letter with each small congregation before moving on to the next one. It's very similar, actually, to the opening of the book of Revelation, where you have a similar list of churches in an order, and when you look at them on a map, they kind of go around in a circle. Same kind of thing going on here. Uh, so that's the, that's the area it's being written to. You've got Asia Minor. You can see Byzantium there uh, at the entrance to the Black Sea. Okay, we can, we can lose the map now. Thank you. So its first verse gives its author as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And traditional church teaching has suggested that this should be taken at face value and that what we have here are the written words of none other than Simon Peter himself. However, there are good reasons for thinking that the letter might more credibly be an example of what is known as pseudonymity. That's spelt with a silent P, of course, as in swimming pool. There was... Some of you are there. (laughs) There was an established practice in the ancient world of writing a letter as if it came from an already dead person of note or importance. Now, the important thing to remember here is that this is not the same thing as forgery or deceit. Because if the person is already known to be dead, no one suddenly getting a letter from them in their name would actually think that it came from them writing from beyond the grave or something. If I stood up this morning and said... A letter from Winston Churchill written to the people of Bloomsbury. You would know that what I was doing was a literary device. I hadn't actually just discovered a hidden letter from Winston Churchill. Exactly the same thing with the practice of pseudonymity. It was writing uh, using a pseudonym of somebody who was famous and well-known but now dead. So I think it's probably best to think of uh, one Peter as a literary exercise in what Simon Peter might have said to us if he were still alive today. That's probably the best way of thinking about the authorship. We've got plenty of other examples of this practice in the New Testament, including, of course, 2 Peter, and also some of the letters that bear Paul's name, probably uh, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. They may well fit in this same category. 
It's written in the tradition of Simon Peter, but probably not actually by him. Anyway, uh, we do uh, have strong evidence for thinking that it's written from Rome, because it signs off with a greeting from the church in Babylon, uh, in chapter 5, verse 13. And we know that the early church often used Babylon as a cipher or code for Rome. Interestingly, the tradition of naming the empire as Babylon is very much still with us to this day. I don't know if you've listened to much Rastafarian music. I see Duncan smiling at me. I know he's listened to a lot of this. And I've actually heard Duncan give a, a fascinating talk on, on Rastafarian music. So if you want to know more about that, I'd encourage you to talk to him afterwards. But if you do spend time with Rastafarian music, you will find them using the word Babylon to refer to those human governments and systems in our own time which they believe are in rebellion against the rule of God. And they're just following a long tradition going back to the first century where something very similar was taking place. And what was going on was that the story of the Jewish exile in Babylon, which had taken place about 600 years earlier, was being used to describe the relationship between the people of God in the first century and the ruling empire of their day, which was Rome. In many ways, this sets in place a theology of exile. You are the exiles, the empire is Babylon. That's the theological move that's going on there. And it lies behind a lot of what we will meet in this letter over the next few weeks. So it's worth spending a few moments understanding really what's going on with this. For the Jews, for the Jewish nation of the first century, the Babylonian exile of 600 years earlier had been a defining moment. Jerusalem had fallen to the invading army of Babylon, and a significant swathe of the population had been taken into exile. And it was whilst they were in Babylon separated from their promised land, knowing that their temple had been destroyed and their king taken into exile and then murdered, that they developed a form of Judaism that could survive even when dislocated from the land of Israel itself. In other words, it was in exile that the Jews had learned how to be the faithful people of God when they were away from their own land. Uh, a lot of the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, came into its final written form in this period as they used the time in exile to write their scriptures to make sure their, their defining stories were not lost to them. We get some of the Psalms dating from this point. You, you know the one, uh, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept as we remembered Zion. How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? That's from that period. They worked out what it was to be the people of God in exile. And it's this theological insight that the writer of 1 Peter takes and applies to the people in the congregations to whom he's writing. For these early Christians of the first century, life was experienced as one of dislocation. Their decision to follow the path of Christ had led to them being removed forcibly on occasions from their old lives and thrust into a new way of being. Because early Christians refused to worship the emperor, 
they found they were no longer able to access the marketplaces in their towns because everyone was expected to make an offering to the emperor cult as part of their commercial transactions. And if you weren't prepared to make an offering to the emperor, you couldn't do business. They faced economic isolation. They faced financial disadvantage because of their desire to faithfully follow Christ. But it was more than just economics. By worshipping Christ rather than the pantheon of the Greco-Roman gods of the emperor, they found themselves at odds with their families, ostracized from their friends, cut off from their support networks. In many ways, the situation facing Christian converts in Asia Minor in the first century has resonances with the situation facing Christian converts in many countries around the world today. There are people sat here this morning who have experience of the fact that when you convert to Christianity, you are no longer welcome in your own country. For reasons relating to somebody who is not here this morning, because our church member and good friend Sheikh remains in detention at Heathrow Airport this week, making his asylum claim on religious grounds, uh, for reasons relating to him, I've been doing some reading about the situation facing Christian converts from Islam in Bangladesh. And as part of this, I've been in contact with an expert in international mission who wrote an amazing letter of support for our friend. Let me just tell you a little of what he says the situation is like in Bangladesh, and you will see how closely it matches the situation faced by the recipients of 1 Peter. So the friend who wrote the letter says, You'll be aware that after many years of Bangladesh being a strongly Islamic yet tolerant country, the situation has changed rapidly in recent years. Over the last 10 years, we have been aware of an increase in hostility from radical Muslim groups towards Christians who would espouse a worldview other than a strict interpretation of Islam. Most Muslim converts to Christianity have to live as secret believers for fear of their lives. To declare their faith publicly, which many do, is to risk losing one's family and friends, and of course, one's life. Whilst the Constitution theoretically safeguards the right to practice the religion of one's choice, successive governments have realized they cannot ignore the pressure that comes from Islamic militants within their own borders. In truth, there is now considerable evidence of many coming to faith in Christ from a Muslim background in Bangladesh, but the numbers are underreported for the reasons stated above. It is simply not admissible for someone to be sent back to Bangladesh knowing that their only chance of safety is to deny the religious experience they have come to embrace. Freedom of religion is a fundamental human right. Well, we pray that that letter and the others that are accompanying it will pay dividends in our friends' forthcoming bail hearing and asylum claim and all the rest of it. But uh, I think it has these really strong resonances with the world of the first century, bringing, bringing it home to us in ways that I think are quite moving. Those who wish to start following Christ in Bangladesh will experience life as exiles in their own culture, which is precisely the situation faced by first century Christians in Asia Minor. So, 1 Peter begins, To the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are exiles in their own land. They are cut off from their culture. And the writer of the letter invites them to understand this experience 
in the light of the experience of the people of God down the centuries. The theological point here is that the people of God are always called into exile. From ancient Babylon to first century Asia Minor to modern Bangladesh and dare I say it, yes, maybe even London too. We are called to be the people of God exiled within our own world. What this means for us, of course, if we are to be the people of God, is that we are emphatically not anyone else's people. Our allegiance is to Christ and to Christ alone. We have no king but Jesus, screams the little Republican inside me. And all other attempts to enslave us to ideologies of nationalism, consumerism, or militarism must be resisted in the name of Christ. The great insight of this opening line from 1 Peter is that we are all called into exile and that there will be consequences that we will have to face for our obedience to this call. We may not live in Bangladesh. We may not have to face the same consequences that brothers and sisters there are facing, but there will be consequences for us too. However, having addressed the letter to the exiles, this word is then immediately qualified. Did you spot it? To the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're not just exiles. They are exiles of the dispersion, or the exiles of the diaspora, to put it slightly differently. And this, too, is a word which calls to mind the Jewish religious concept that the author wants his readers to appropriate to their own situation. The Jewish diaspora, or dispersion, were those Jews who in the first century lived in places other than the land of Israel itself. The lessons learned and the faith formed in exile in Babylon had created a sense of identity for the Jewish people of God that sustained them even when they were distant from their temple and from their promised land. It still does to this day, of course, which is why Judaism remains one of the very few tribal religions to have survived the repeated scattering of its people around the world. It's their exile theology that keeps them faithful, no matter where they are. And this is what the author of 1 Peter wants his Christian people of God to learn. So the word that 1 Peter uses here, diaspora or dispersion, has a sense of sowing about it. It's a harvest image, a sense of scattering the seed on the land. And he's inviting those who experience their life as followers of Christ to be one of exile, to see themselves not just as exiles, but as the seeds of the gospel, scattered in the world to take root, to grow, to flourish and to bear the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in whatever context they find themselves. There's an echo here of the advice given by the prophet Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah told the Babylonian exiles to seek the welfare of the city where they had been sent into exile. 
He told them to pray to the Lord on behalf of the city for its welfare, because in the city's welfare they will find their welfare. Those exiled in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia because of their faithfulness to Christ are to become resident aliens rooted in the world but not owned by the world. This is no mandate, I'm afraid, for isolationist Christianity. There's no call here to be the kind of community which shuts itself off from the world to preserve its holiness. Rather, this is a vision of the church called from the world and then sent back into the world for the transformation of the world. The writer then reiterates this point more strongly in the second verse of the letter making absolutely sure that the theological framework on which the whole of the rest of the letter is going to hang is firmly established. And verse 2 is one of the great early Trinitarian formulations of the Christian faith, and its force echoes down to us today from that early context. He says, firstly, that the exiles of the dispersion are chosen and destined by God the Father. The people of God exist because God the Father has called them into existence. And we, like Israel of old, like the Christians of the first century, we too are called into being in Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, London. We are called into being by the call of God. We are called to be his people, to have no other gods before him and to give our allegiance to none other. This means we belong to a people constituted unlike all other people groups in the history of humanity. We're not gathered around nationality or military might or territorial belonging or conquest or expansion. We're not sustained by walls or weapons or warfare. We are God's people called by him from among the nations to live as aliens and exiles in the midst of a sometimes hostile world. We are defined neither by left nor right, not by color of skin or colors of flag. We are sustained by grace and peace. Called to be a people of grace and a community of peace. Grace and peace, says the letter. So we are called to resist narratives of violent struggle or exclusionist politics. We're called to be a different and distinct people in the world, but not of the world. To be a people who embody the biblical politics of peace, who dwell non-violently among the nations as aliens and exiles in their midst as visible signs of God's grace and peace. But how on earth are we to do this? Well, says the author, we do this because we are sanctified by the Spirit. We are called by God the Father, but we are sanctified by the Spirit. Our hearts are purified by the Spirit of Christ at work within us, forming us from the inside out to be God's people. It is the Spirit who sustains us through our suffering. It is the Spirit who protects our inner being through the fires of persecution. It is the Spirit who reveals to us the truth of the salvation that comes to us from beyond our current experience. Sometimes it can seem as if everywhere we turn, we're being promised or sold dreams of salvation. 
From political solutions to bespoke religions to economic miracles, we are surrounded by people promising us the earth. And we are enabled to resist the lure of such lies because we are sanctified by the Spirit of Christ who dwells in our hearts and assures us of our salvation. And it is this strength of the Spirit that calls us then to obedience to Christ. It is the wind of the Spirit that scatters us in the world as resident aliens, as exiles of the dispersion. We are called to an appropriate sense of separation from society. We're called to live by a different script, to embody an alternative narrative. Our call is not to form holy enclaves or to distance ourselves from society. Rather, our call is to obedience to Christ, who came from heaven to earth. So we are called back to the earth. We are sown amongst the nations to take root and bear fruit, to live and work for the transformation of society, for the good of the city and the culture to which we've been sent. And so, as election fever takes root in our media, as cynicism and disconnectedness threaten to stifle and choke the fledgling shoots of hope, we are called to be rooted and grounded in love. We're called to be witnesses to the truth that there is another way. We're called to become involved in the processes of our world, to challenge and change them into the likeness of the kingdom of Christ where our citizenship is already secure. So let's not be afraid to talk politics. And if party politics isn't your thing, that's fine. Why not join me and Helen and Dawn and others in becoming involved in the transformation of society through our church's participation in London citizens? Come along a week Wednesday. Another example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, uh, just next week I'll be attending, as one of your ministers, the shareholder meeting of Taylor Wimpy. I bought my one share, so I'm now a shareholder, and I've requested to be at the shareholder meeting. And my job is to try and doorstep the CEO of Taylor Wimpy, uh, or possibly to stand up and interrupt the shareholder meeting on a point of order. We're going to see how it goes. We want to gain a commitment from them that they will guarantee to build at least 35% of all new houses as genuinely affordable. Can you imagine what that would do to our city? Can you imagine what that would do to the homeless hostels, to the people living in abject poverty because they can't afford housing? I mean, the, the potential here for transformation of our world is enormous. And this is what we are called to as the people of God. Not to stand apart from this, but to get stuck in with it. Or become involved in the situations facing refugees. Or become an advocate for addressing climate change, which is so directly affecting so many people around the globe. Or take up the banner of our commitments to be a Kairos congregation and become more involved in the situation facing Palestinians. Those of you who were here two weeks ago will remember that we were invited as part of our Palm Sunday service to write on placards the issues which made us so angry or so concerned that we were prepared to stand up and be countered about that issue. And you've only got to look at them to see the depth of commitment that we have to a hurting and damaged world within our Sunday congregation. Surely a church such as ours should be leading the way in addressing these kinds of issues. And in many ways we are. But we can only do so if we hear the call on our lives. 
We are called to be the people of God, called from the world, exiled from the world and sent back to the world, scattered in the world for the good of the world. We are sanctified by the Spirit of Christ to live lives of radical obedience to the Prince of Peace. This is our calling and it is our task. So let's live it out.